You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We started a couple of weeks ago uh, looking at this letter from Paul to Timothy. It is Paul's last letter. He is in a Roman prison, writing to his protege Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus. And what we are looking at this morning, um, I guess one way to say it is we're going we're gonna to talk about the Bible from the Bible this morning. Um, that this is a passage uh, that tells us something about the nature of of God's Word. And my aim this morning, I'm going to tell you right up front, is that you, you would, one, I hope, um, feel the weight of in a good way, that you would be drawn to in a, in a good way, um, what it is that you hold in your hands this morning, or what it is that you unlocked on your device this morning. Because I fear that the, the Bible is something that, you know, there's Bible, Bible everywhere. And, and yet, I think as Todd said it last week, um, the problem for us is we're not, it's not that we're reading too much Bible. Um, that we're not reading it enough and we, we very often don't think about what it is. What it is that we actually hold in our hands this morning. And so I'll give a few things about the Bible here as by way of introduction. When you're you're talking about Scripture, uh, we're talking about uh, what one book, one way to say it, one book from from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And it comes in 66 parts. The Bible, that word literally means book. Scripture literally means writing, and they're used as synonyms throughout the Bible to speak about what it is that we hold in our hands this morning. And you look at the 66 books, and there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. They are written over a course of about 1,500 years uh, by about 40 authors, primarily in the Old Testament. It is written in Hebrew, in the New Testament, It is written in Greek, and there are a few places here and there that it is written in Aramaic. The authors over these 1,500 years, they were people who were rich. They were people who were poor. There were young men. There were old men. There were those that were highly educated. There were those that had no education at all. There were those single. There were those who were married. It is a cross-section of people from all stages of life. The Bible is... The best-selling book of all time. I think the estimate is somewhere between five and six or seven billion copies printed and sold. When we talk about the Old Testament, we are talking about the time before Christ, also known as B.C., before Christ. Later in academia, we began to say B.C.E., before Common Era. But the dates are exactly the same. The New Testament is after the birth of Christ, A.D. 
in, in the year of the Lord, in, in the Latin is what that stands for, also known as CE, the common era. Chapters were introduced into the Bible somewhere around the 1200s. And in the 1500s, there were verses attached in the chapter. So this morning, for me to say, uh, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 10. Uh, That is a relatively new way to be able to speak about the Bible. Relatively. History tells us that there have always been attempts to destroy the Bible. Um, There was um, several... Uh, movements throughout the history of the people of faith to ensure that the Bible would be in a reader's uh, own language. And throughout history, countless men and women died so that we could have the Bible that we hold today. The Bible went through several um, what we would call translations, Uh, The Hebrew Old Testament in 250 B.C. uh, was translated into the Greek, known as the Septuagint. The next major translation was in about the 3rd century, where um, 4th century Jerome takes the language of the day, he translates the Bible into Latin, which was the vernacular, it's what everyone spoke. In the 1300s, there's a guy named John Wycliffe, and he um, set out to translate the Bible into English. He died in 1384 from a stroke, but the church was so mad at him for doing this that some 15 years after his death, they had a trial, and they condemned him as a heretic. And then some 10 years after that, the Pope was still so mad at him, even though he'd been dead for 25 years, they had his body um, dug up and they burned it to ash. They didn't, they didn't want the common people reading the Bible. They didn't trust the people with the Bible. It was in Latin and that was, that was good enough for everybody. There was a copy at the church. If you wanted to hear it, you went to the church. The priest read it. You didn't understand it at that time, but he told you what it said and what it is that you were supposed to do. And Wycliffe had a vision for, for the Bible being again in the hands of God's people. About that same time, there was a guy named John Huss, lived a little bit after Wycliffe. They were contemporaries for a little while. He translates it into the Czech language, into that native language, following Wycliffe. And Huss will be burned at the stake in 1415 for his efforts. Then, one generation after that, you will have guys like Martin Luther. You will have guys like William Tyndale. Tyndale is an Englishman translates the Bible into English, and in 1536 he was executed in Belgium uh, Belgium by strangulation, and then they burned him at the stake. What's interesting is is when the Bible was finally commissioned by King James uh, and ultimately published in 1611, about 85% of the King James translation followed uh, Tyndale. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever 
would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And of the possible 25 or 30 different ways to translate that into English, that's Tyndale. Luther in Germany is doing the same thing. He's translating the Bible into German. One of my favorite scenes of the movie Luther, if you have seen it, if you have not seen it, it is not too late to repent of that. Go home and watch it this afternoon. Joseph Fiennes plays an excellent Luther, and there is the scene towards the end of the movie after he's finally translated it. He walks into the chamber of the king there in Germany, uh, Frederick, Frederick the Wise, who, who up to that point in his, in his old life had never been able to read the Bible, didn't know Latin. Luther comes in with this, what he knows is the Bible, but it's wrapped in a, some brown paper, and, and there's the king sitting at his desk, and his hands in the movie are just are like this. Not listening to anything Luther's saying, just can't wait to get his hands on the Bible. I think it's a great picture. He tears the paper open and opens it and begins to read it for the first time in his language. Men and women gave their lives throughout the centuries under great duress and hardship and persecution so we can have what we have today in our hands this, this morning. And why would somebody do that? Why would somebody devote their life to something they know would bring sorrow, they know would bring suffering, they know would bring poverty and ultimately death? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the Scripture contains power. The, the Word of God comes with the authority of God. It, it takes down kings. It changes societies. It transforms hearts and minds. It renews people. The Word of God, when it's unleashed, Isaiah 55 says, it, it goes out to and fro from the earth. It accomplishes what God intends it to do. These men and women lived it and experienced it and believed it. That's why wherever... Christianity goes, it takes literacy and education with it. When Christian missionaries and Bible translators go into parts of the world or groups of people that don't have a written language, they learn the spoken language, then they turn it into a written language, then they translate the Bible into a written language so people can read the Bible and be literate. Understand from God's Word who God is and be saved. That's what Paul will say. And not only those who've translated and copied the Bible suffered, the authors of the Bible themselves suffered. They suffered greatly, they, they suffered mightily. Hebrews gives us a picture of. of them being sawn in half. So we come to Paul today, and um, he's the author of this letter. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul authors 13 or 14 of them, depending on if you, how you, who you take the author of Hebrews to be. And Paul, he's a man who started out as a guy who hated Christians 
and he murdered Christians. By the end of his life here, he is a man who murdered Christians, and he is a man to be murdered as a Christian. He was, in many ways, in the view of the early church, um, a terrorist who was out to um, seize Christians, to arrest them uh, because they were breaking the law, and he would put them to death, and he um, all of a sudden gets converted, becomes a Christian, and then he is extremely passionate about this gospel, about this life change, about this Jesus that he met on the road of Damascus. And then he embarks, we find out from Acts, three missionary journeys that include about 5,500 miles that he traveled. And all this before there were planes and trains and automobiles or even a movie about him. He's on a boat, he's on foot, 5,500 miles to preach Jesus from the Bible. At this point in Paul's life, what we know about him is he has been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, been homeless, he's been left for dead, uh, left in the open sea, almost starved to death, attacked by mobs. At one point, he says he bears the marks of the crucifixion, which means if you were to rip his shirt off and look at his back, you would see one that had been bloodied and scarred. Now he's in a Roman prison. Actually, he's in a hole in the ground in Rome. And he tells Timothy later in this, a couple of, uh, well, a chapter later, that he's cold. So, so bring, bring him a, a, a blanket and here he has a pen in his hand, in this hole, writing this final letter. A couple of weeks, maybe months from this, he'll have his head chopped off. Um, he suffered. The guy who writes the Bible suffered as much or more as the guys who translated the Bible so that we can read it today. Everyone who's involved with the Scriptures ends up suffering and dying. And the reason is because the Scriptures are so powerful that there is this incredible resistance throughout history to them being written, to them being preserved, to them being proclaimed. The world, the world knows the power of God's Word and seeks everything it can to snuff it out. So, so I want you to notice here, li listen to these words of Paul. As he's in this hole, as he's in uh, Rome, as he's under Roman guard, as he awaits his execution, feel the weight of his words. But last week, we, we talked, uh, Todd talked about the first part of chapter 3, and he was saying, look, the, the, as, as the days uh, come closer to the end, you know, in the last days, we're, we're, in the, we're in the last days, I don't know how long the last days last, but, you, but you'll see an increase, you, you'll see an increase of people who are spiritual, but they're not biblical, 
And that will continue to increase, and it will continue to sour the church. It will continue to make it unhealthy. And so he doesn't want Timothy to be led astray. You can tell these people, they're, 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 um, it's all about self-interest for them. It's all about gathering people that will listen to them so they can influence them for their own gain. Timothy, don't be like one of those. So in verse 10, he says, but you, or, or but as for you, Timothy... You, however, you followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. But as for you, he says there in verse 10, you, Timothy, hey, listen, you know this. You've seen my life. This is the result. I, I don't do this out of self-interest. Contra the, the, the teachers I described in verses 2 through 5. You, if you think about it, well, what's in this for Paul? Homeless, beaten, Shipwrecked, left for dead, hated, despised, no wife, no kids, in a hole. Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, you can trust me when I tell you something. When I speak to you from God's Word, you know that it is true. I'm not telling you this because it's clever, because it's convenient, I, I, or, or because it benefits me in some way. Way I, I'm not looking for followers or power or fame or a new religion or a book deal. There's nothing in this for me. I await my death. So remember my life. Look at my conduct and look at listen, you followed my teaching and my purpose in life and my faith and my patience and my love and my steadfastness. And he speaks of Antioch, Iconium, Lashi. you go to Acts chapter 13 and 14, you see all the things Paul endured there. In fact, he finally gets to Lystra and people from Antioch and Iconium, they're chasing him all the way there to stone him again. He's basically saying to Timothy, look, my life, my teaching... Look, this is true. There's not anything in it for me. You've seen my life. You know that it costs me everything. Paul was willing to die for that. He goes on in verse 12 and he says this, Indeed, indeed. Indeed. It's a tough word here, considering what follows it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you love Jesus, if you walk with Jesus, you want to live a, a godly life, because you're, you're not being conformed to this world, but being transformed into the likeness 
of the Son of God. You'll face opposition. That's what he says. There will be people who don't like what you believe. They don't like what you say. It doesn't mean that, that you, you, you're rude. It doesn't just means you're going to meet resistance. Love is patient and it's kind. And I have to think that's what Paul was, was a kind man and a loving man and a, and a patient man. And he's going to be murdered. He says things will go from bad to worse. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. You know, this is, a, this is not a sermon about worldview, but it does make us pause for one moment and think about a worldview for a second. Do you think things are getting better or worse? You know, it's interesting. You can go back to the beginning of the 20th century, the early you know, 1900s. There's this great hope, this great expectation I mean, technology was just coming onto the scene and life was going to get easier as it became automated and there were um, scientific discoveries and the world was filled with this expectation of life getting better. I mean, the possibilities were endless. And then there's World War I. There's the Great Depression, there's World War II, the threat of nuclear holocaust. You know, it's interesting, you, you look at the history, the 20th century, even apart from war, so 20th century is filled with war, but you take war out of it, apart from war, the 20th century, the bloodiest, bloodiest century there ever was, apart from war. This is what governments did. A million and a half Armenians slaughtered. Six million Jews. Fifty million Chinese. Twenty million Ukrainians. On and on and on. About 170 million people apart from war killed by governments. And not only that, we speak about martyrdom. The Center for Study of Global Christianity, this is 2017, this is a year old, it says 900,000 Christians have been martyred in the last decade, equating to 90,000 a year or one every six minutes. The 2.4 billion Christians in the world, two-thirds of those Christians live in areas of war and conflict and violence. It's important to remember that Christianity is not easy in other places of the world like it is here. I don't say that to bring discouragement. I do say that to say we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have illusions about this world. That a new generation or a new type of government or a new political leader is going to bring about this hope that we all long for. It, if we learn anything from history, we know that that is likely not true at all. Paul says here 2,000 years ago, it'll go from bad 
the worst. Tim Keller says this. He says, optimism is foolish, but pessimism is atheistic because God is still on His throne. We're not pessimists. We're realists. We, we know how it ends. We know that this is not the end. We, we know we do not come up with the grand solution. Our hope is in the return of Jesus. Well, so he goes on, and look at verse 14 and 15. He says, but as for you, as for you, Timothy, here's this contrast. Those things will go from bad to worse, and deceiving to being deceived, that's the way it goes. That's going to be the way of the world. That's the way it is. Things will become more spiritual, less biblical. You'll see it all around. Those who are bad will become worse. But as for you, Timothy... You continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That the world around may progress from bad to worse. You're going to continue standing where you are firmly. What was taught to you, what you learned, what you firmly believe. And he tells Timothy, listen, this is what you've learned. You didn't come into the world. I didn't come into the world with a knowledge about God. Well, we don't have this innate knowledge. We don't come out of the womb knowing who God is. We learn it. And we learn about God from what God has revealed about Himself. And then He says you firmly believed it, meaning believing it is true. You, you, you can learn it and not believe it. There are plenty of people that, have, that do that. To, to learn it and not believe it is somehow to say, listen, well, I'm, I'm going to weigh all things. And then you decide. And if that's the case, then you become your own authority. What Paul is telling Timothy here is, listen, to firmly believe means the Bible is the authority in your life. That you submit to the truth that God has revealed. It is not you weighing that truth amongst all other truths and you deciding, well, I I think I like this truth the best. Or this version of it. I'll put this together and this together and I'll make my own thing. Which unwittingly is what most of us do. He does say this to Timothy. He says, you learned this from, from childhood. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about his mother and his grandmother. Lois and Eunice. He's not talking about a seminary degree. He's not talking primarily about the things that Paul taught him, although Paul did teach him and is included in this. But what he's saying is, listen, this started when you were young. This started when your mother and your grandmother used to read the sacred scriptures to you. They used to talk about the sacred scriptures to you. You learned this from them. Timothy has this great heritage of growing up in a home that believed God's word. 
could write out beside there if you wanted to. Mothers, do you know what this is saying? That that of all the things that you're supposed to be, of all the things to expect when you're expecting, Paul's saying is, you have a role as a theologian, as a mother. You'd read the Scriptures to your kids, that you would read the Bible with your kids. That from very early, they would know God's Word. Because you were, you were giving them God's Word. Doesn't let dads off the hook. Ephesians 6 talks about how you're supposed to train up your children. Just talk about dads next week. It's their day. They get one day of the year. We're going to make the most of it. <laughs> Mom, your title, of all the things that your titles are, one of them, maybe the chief, is theologian. I remember, I'll tell you what, I'm so I'm thankful for my mom. I, I, I just, I remember what she would say and what she believed and how she trusted God. I mean, there are two things that are treasures in my life. And I don't have, I'll have one, I don't have the other yet. One is my grandfather's Bible, which is, I've brought it up here before, it's just absolutely marked up every single page. He just loved God's Word. He loved God's Word. Of all the things that he left, that that's the treasure. And the other treasure um, awaits my mom passing away. Not that I'm like in a hurry for that, but I do ask her every time I'm with her, I'm like, hey, you ready to give the you ready for me to inherit the Green Bible yet? She's like, Yeah, well, sure, there's a, a whole parable about that. The two sons, right? Go ahead and take your inheritance. But I mean, listen, when, when my mom dies, let me just say this. I, maybe I'll, I'll edit this second hour because that may be the one that she listens to. But <laughs> when she dies, I'm going to be super sad. I am. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I have every confidence where she's going to be. My aim in driving to Abilene, Texas after she dies is to get that green Bible before my siblings do. <laughs> after that is secure and in my hands then I'll mourn, all right? <laughs> But man, I love that thing. I love it. You don't know about my mom. She was a single mom of five kids. She was 29 years old. She hadn't graduated from high school. And she had nothing. But she had that Bible. And man, she clung to it. The truth of it. I remember her saying to me all the time, listen, your feelings don't have anything to do with the facts. The facts are here, Ross. These are the facts. You, you just don't have all the information because God is sovereign. 
remember her saying all the time. I think she quoted it from Bob Jones. But if the stars fall, do right. Which was a paraphrase of the Psalms. Psalm 68, 8. If I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times growing up. He's the father of the fatherless. The protector of widows. That's who God is. Or Psalm 84, 10. A day in your courts are better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wicked. Matthew 6 would roll off her tongue. I, I don't have it memorized. She had every word of it memorized. Look at the birds of the air. They're now the sown or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That portion ends with, but seek the kingdom of God first and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. I'm thankful for a lot of things about my mom. I'll tell you though, the most thing I'm thankful for is she was a, she was a theologian. She believed it. She clung to it. These sacred writings that he speaks of. Paul's talking about the Old Testament. We find out later from Peter that the sacred writings also, the Scripture, the sacred Scripture, which, which you hear in the Bible talk about the sacred or the holy word or thus says the Lord over 3,000 times, Scripture makes that identification. Peter will count what Paul is writing. He knows, he knows what Paul is writing as Scripture. He says this in 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 3, and count the patience uh, of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. These are some, uh, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions as they do the other scriptures. Paul is writing in this hole to Timothy. It's the Word of God. He says it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You listen to that? Through faith. Not through anything else. It is by grace through faith in Christ. It is through faith. It is not because you're getting better. It is not because of your works. It is not because of your church membership. This is what the Bible attests. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells the men on the road to Amazing, he tells his disciples a few verses later that every bit of it, everything from Genesis to Revelation, it was all about me. God revealing himself. He is revealing our need for a Savior. From the very first pages of the Bible, it is anticipating the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament writers, they didn't know his name, but there was a hope that they expected. 
And look at verse 16. Can't hardly believe it says what it says. All Scripture, all of it, every bit of it, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good all the Scripture, all of it, all the Scripture that is, that is beyond where it is that we typically stop somewhere in March after we've gone through Leviticus and we've hit Numbers, all the stuff after that too, all of it. Maybe your translation says, God breathed. The old King James said, was inspired, which is a good word, but not a great word for today because inspired can mean all kinds of things, you know? You look at a painting and you feel inspired. or You know, you wrote a poem because you were inspired. That's not what that means. It's a word that means that, that God breathed it out. It's the same imagery that comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God creates Adam. What does He do to give Adam life? He breathes life into the man. Hebrews 4 says that the Bible, that the Word of God is living and it's active and He, and he breathes them into existence. He breathed life into man. He breathes life into the pages. Scripture, he, he, the exhale of God came through the writers. That's what he's saying. It's not that they were writing and God looked over their shoulder and said, hey, that's pretty good. I'm gonna, I'll inspire that. I'll stamp it with my approval. That's not what it is. That God exhales and that exhale comes through the writer onto the page that these are God's words. It is the very word of God. So some, I know, you sit and you think, well, you know, I wish, I'd love to hear from God. I'd love for God to talk to me. I'd love for Him to send me an email or, you know, I mean, I don't know what time zone it is in heaven, but if He called me at 2 a.m. in the morning, I'd answer We think, man, I'd love to hear from God. I just wish He'd talk to me. Wish He'd say something. Well, I wish He'd sit right here. And I would say what Paul is claiming is, guess what? From Genesis to Revelation, it's as though God takes a deep breath and He has spoken to us. He is speaking to us. Over and over. He's spoken for, for some 1,500 years through 40 authors and 66 books. And He is speaking now and you can hear from God anytime you want. We speak to Him in prayer. We listen to Him in Scripture. It's how you build your relationship with Him. You talk in prayer, He answers in Scripture. And it's amazing. It's 
Amazing. You can hear from him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, under any circumstance, for any purpose. If you think about it, what a great and glorious gift that God breathed and revealed himself to us. Paul is saying that the word of God is no different as you read it than God sitting next to you speaking to you. Jesus says in John 14 through 16 that the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a believer, indwells you. And one of the main purposes of that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate your mind, your eyes, your heart to reading God's Word so that this living and active Word, this book that is alive, that God speaks to you. Believer. It's amazing to hear this from Paul, isn't it? I mean, sitting in a hole in Rome, in prison, waiting to be executed, waiting to have his head removed. You know what it tells us? It tells us this. Suffering, suffering does not diminish the sufficiency of God's Word. It doesn't. But Paul's imprisonment didn't diminish his faith in God's Word, his faith in God's Truth. Suffering doesn't negate truth. I think so many of us, we get into a time of suffering or things get hard and we think something must be wrong. Where is God? He never left you. He never forsakes you. Well, the, all this means some things practically. So let me see if I can wrap this up. So, to say that all scriptures breathed, that all Scripture, this is the very Word of God, spoken and speaking. That there are things that, that are Scripture. We have it, these 66 books. There are lots of things that are not Scripture. They're good ideas, there are opinions, there are bad ideas, there's bad opinions. There's all of this out there. It is not God-breathed. This is and we live in this very interesting time. The amount of information on the earth right now is doubling. There's all different kinds of statistics about it. The best, the median statistic is probably every two years information is doubling. On an average, about 1,000 new articles to Wikipedia are added every single day. The size of the digital universe will double every two years. One uh, study uh, talked about the knowledge doubling curve. They noticed that until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. Today, things are not as simple, he writes, as different types of knowledge have different rates of growth. For example, nanotechnology is doubling every two years and clinical knowledge every 18 months. But on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. According to IBM, the build out of the internet of things will lead to doubling of knowledge every 12 hours. It's half the information in the world. It's from Adam and Eve up till this point. And the other half is now. It's increasing exponentially. Where's your anchor? Who are you listening to? There's two ways God's words attack. One is people trying to destroy it. We talked about that a minute ago. The other is that they try to undermine it. 
They'll undermine it with scholarship and that there is nothing new under the sun there. But they'll undermine it in another way. They'll placate it. Scripture's good. It's beautiful. It's nice. It's, scripture has its place. But then quickly you're pointed to another authority, a higher authority. Maybe it's your experience. Maybe it's your feelings. Maybe it's your circumstance. Where will you go? What will you learn? What will you continue in? Paul instructs Timothy, here is where life is found. So, the man of God, a woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the point there is that God's intention is for you to do good work. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. You're saved to good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says you're saved by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus. Period. And then verse 10 says that you're saved to this, you're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, for good works that were prepared for you beforehand. You're not saved by those good works, but they're prepared for you. They're waiting for you. They've been ordained for you. So walk in them. So what do you do from here? So here's what I would say. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Well, let's not take this for granted. Let's, let's feel the weight of what it is that we have this morning. And I want to encourage you this morning to be a man, to be a woman, to be a teenager that opens their Bible. And ask three simple questions when you do. One, what does it say? What, what is it saying? I mean, what do I see here? What, what, what's it saying? What, what's the author that wrote it saying to the audience that he's writing it to? What, what does he say? What do I notice about this? Simple observation. Just what is it that I see? And then secondly, you might ask the question, why is it here? I mean, of all the things that could be written... Of all the things that God could breathe out, why this? Why did He write this? Then finally, ask the question what does this tell me about who God is? How does He show me my need for Jesus? How does He show the need that Jesus had to become man, to live among us, to die a cursed death on a cross for, for my sins and be raised to new life. What does it tell me about God? What mirror does it hold up to me about my life? What do I see? Why is it there? What does this tell me about God? That is a great place to start as you open God's Word. We open it. We say, God, Teach us. T teach me. I'm opening this, this living word that was spoken and is speaking. Teach me. Where I'm wrong, rebuke me. Where I need correction, correct me. Train me in your righteousness, in your goodness, in your ways. Equip me so I'm able to do all the works that you created for me before the foundations of time. I don't want to miss any of those works. not doing it so you'll like me better or that you'll love me more. 
It's not out of obligation. I want to because you've saved me. Not out of obligation do I do this. Out of devotion do I do this. Not so you'll embrace me because you already have. And you've changed my life. Would you continue to change it more? That's our prayer. So if you would, would you bow with me and let us pray to the, to the God who breathed out this word for us. Father, we come to you this morning and I...